Let me start by saying that this is an abbreviated section from one of the chapters of our book, I Am Gravity. And this one is on the element of veracity, which means the habitual pursuit of and adherence to truth, which you may have noticed is not doing so well these days. Most of the time I'll be reading, but I'll have the occasional riff or even set things up a little differently because reading isn't always like talking to somebody. The goal isn't just to be informative here. Our hope is that you see things a little differently just by listening a little more deeply and that you live with a little more gravity. So with that, I'll just say thank you for listening. Uh, The chapter's title is The Dangers of Safety, and the epigraph is The Constructive Clash of Human Emotions. Teams that disrupt industries, create uncontested market space, or cure the disease of mediocrity have unorthodox communication habits, the kind that would make most soft-skill communication courses squirm a little. That's because truth-telling, truth-hunting conversations are not soft. Here are a few quotes from the research we did, perusing and scanning and diving deep into different books. Create dissension and disagreement rather than consensus. Decisions are made well only if based on the clash of conflicting views. It is the only safeguard against the decision makers becoming the prisoner of the organization. You need storms. If every day is sunny and it doesn't rain, things don't grow. And if it's sunny all the time, if in fact we don't even ever have night, all kinds of things don't happen and the planet dries up. You need executives who argue and debate, sometimes violently, in pursuit of the best answers. Phrases like loud debate, heated discussions, and healthy conflict peppered the articles and interview transcripts. The entire management team would lay itself open to searing questions and challenges. Depart from the conventional logic robustly and scrutinize every factor. Or the last one, if your disruptive product or service is not yet good enough and your team seems enthralled, raise a big red flag. If your team assures you that you'll succeed because the new venture fits your company's core competence, tell them you can't deal in fuzzy concepts. Heating things up doesn't come naturally to most of us. Culturally, we spend a lot of time in educational ceremonies, cooling down conversations, and keeping things upbeat. No one wants to make waves in the pool of shared meaning. 61% of the people in one of our surveys said they need a lightning rod to get a little debate started and a surge protector once it starts. And that balance is hard to strike. So let's be clear about psychological safety, which at first appears to be the haven from debate, conflict, and emotional clashes. Doesn't true safety mean it's okay to be annoyed with bureaucracy, bored by average products, frustrated when we fail, aggravated by bad policy, alarmed by people being content, uneasy with company politics, or impatient with slow budget approval? when an opportunity is slipping away, and to passionately express it. Aren't those emotions sometimes precisely how broken things get fixed and revolutions start? Activists don't march on Washington with picket signs of mild irritation. No one breaks the grip of good with a gentle tug. Going home at night unresolved and a little irritated with each other isn't the end of the world. If... Everyone knows it's not the end of the conversation or the relationship. 
In the name of progress, the goal isn't always to lower the tension. You may need to raise it, and yet it's talked down. There are thousands of articles on emotion in the workplace. We randomly sampled 100. Eliminating negative emotions wins by a three-to-one margin. So who's behind the three? Consultants and coaches. Not surprising. Who's on the side of the one? Science. Harvard Medical School psychologist Susan David said this, Trying to impose happy thoughts is extremely difficult, if not impossible, because few people can just turn off negative thoughts and replace them with more pleasant ones. Also, this advice fails to consider an essential truth. Your so-called negative emotions are actually working in your favor. In fact, negativity is normal. This is a fundamental fact. We are wired to feel negative at times. It's simply part of the human condition. Too much stress on being positive is just one more way our culture figuratively over-medicates the normal fluctuations of our emotions. Yet if you watch teams work, you see a lot of energy spent trying to curb the negative. And despite the science, seeing or feeling negative emotions up close with your project in your area of expertise, face-to-face with your antagonist, may cause you to flinch. Everyone needs an added something that pulls us from placid conversations into a little turbulence to enter the fray without fear or flinching. Ironically, that something is a virtue with absolutely no reputation for being virtuous. Ambivalence. In the book turned to film, Girl Interrupted, based on the experiences of Susanna Kaysen in a mental hospital in the 60s, Kaysen has the following conversation with her doctor on what ambivalence means. Kaysen, I'm ambivalent. In fact, that's my new favorite word. Dr. Wick, do you know what that means? Ambivalence? Kaysen, I don't care. Dr. Wick, if it's your favorite word, I would have thought you would. Kaysen, it means I don't care. That's what it means. Dr. Wick, on the contrary, Susanna, ambivalence suggests strong feelings in opposition. The prefix, as in ambidextrous, means both. The rest of it in Latin means vigor. The word suggests that you are torn between two opposing courses of action. So ambivalence is the spirited coexistence of opposite ideas and emotions. Ambivalence is not apathy. The truth is that you feel positive and negative emotions at the same time almost all the time. Everyone's been happy and sad simultaneously. Everyone's had mixed emotions about a person or a situation. Maybe your first promotion was exhilarating and frightening. Maybe you admire and clash with a particular coworker. Ambivalence is the emotional and mental range of maturity to see and feel both sides of ideas or issues. University of Washington management professor Christina Ting Fong studied the effects of emotional ambivalence on creativity. And in one test, Fong had participants recall an emotional event in their life when they felt happy, sad, or both, which was ambivalence. Next, she measured their capacity to think creatively and differently by taking a test known as RAT, which meant remote associates task testing their ability to identify connections between words that are not normally connected. 
those who scored highest in ambivalence scored highest in RAT. And she said, one natural implication of these findings is that managers should attempt to induce emotional ambivalence, for example, bravery and fear, trust and trepidation, assured and nervous, in their employees to increase creativity. Multiple studies across universities found that ambivalent people are more deliberate and work harder at processing information from every angle. As F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, the test of first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. The functioning, Fitzgerald so elegantly writes, isn't as easy to do as it is to say. If there's ever a time you need to be at ease with the and of ambivalence, it's in a startup. As you live through the crucible of testing and retesting your creations while standing on the edge of a financial cliff, trying to figure out if you're securely in the middle of something great or fooling yourself deep into the abyss, ambivalence gives you a wider view of where you are. At times, it may be both. You can't afford to feel only one way about your business. Isolating a single strand of emotion and barricading it from all other emotions is either immaturity or naivete, and it's costly. Or if you're further down the road than startup mode, letting ambivalence disrupt the current company narrative feeds healthy discontent so you don't suffocate from success. Our next story is the former. 20 years ago, we thought we were onto something big and afraid we weren't. Our gut feeling was that we had the thread of something great, but that overall it wasn't. Under financial and peer pressure to be bold and sure, we were ambivalent when everyone else on the team craved confirmation. So in a late night meeting that decided the fate of the product, even though we didn't know it at the time, one person stopped the conversation. He said, time out. Do you guys even like each other? Speaking of me and Dave, who's the co-author of the book. We do. So we were curious. We asked why he was asking. Well, he said, because you argue so passionately against the other's point. Then you flip positions. You even make your own point and then turn around and disagree with the very point you just made. One minute you're confident, the next minute you're apprehensive. I don't know what we're doing here. How are we supposed to make a decision? So he requested a 15-minute break, and I still remember him saying, I just need a reprieve. He changed his mind the next morning. The back and forth was in control. It was productive and passionate, though ambivalence doesn't look that way if low intensity is what you're used to or it's what you're hoping for. In the end, our company failed. But that thread that we felt earlier survived and led to this book. The ambivalence of and was honest and accurate, but it was not easy. Ambivalence is intense. Just how intense to be safe and productive is the question. A study by two Harvard scientists at the dawn of the 20th century and a few brave early century mice set that answer in motion. At Harvard's psychology lab in 1908, researchers Robert Yerkes and John Dodson built an experimental passageway for mice. One passage was painted white and brightly lit. The less easy path was painted black and dimly lit. If the dancers, as Yerkes and Dodson called the mice, chose the brighter passage, they traveled shock-free back into their cozy little nest. 
If they chose the darker passage, dancers received a shock, making the bright passage the best way to travel, but counter to what mice like. Mice are nocturnal, they feel safer in the shadows, and the bright passage was not instinctual. So the researchers gave each dancer 10 tests daily until the bright passage became the route of choice for three consecutive days. The primary way Yerkes and Dodson controlled the dancer's behavior was by adjusting the intensity of the shock from weak to medium to strong. In the first round of experiments, weak shocks made no difference to the dancers. They went wherever they wanted. Next, they upped the ampage to medium. Suddenly, the mice were making the right choice, and they made it faster. So, if a medium shock was good, then strong must be great, right? Not at all. Strong shocks were better than the weakest, far worse than medium. The intensity had to be just right, and so what became known as the Yerkes-Dodson law for dancers and humans alike, behavior optimizes at a Goldilocks intensity. A century after Yerkes and Dodson, Columbia University's Peter Coleman conducted his own intensity experiments. He just swapped mazes for conversations, and his team recorded 500 conversations between people who strongly disagreed on touchy topics like abortion, affirmative action, a political ideology, climate change, etc. After each conversation, some of which made it to the end of the allotted 45 minutes and some stopping before the conversation got even worse, Coleman asked the conversationalists to mark and label their emotions from a timed recording on a conversation map. And the dialogue maps showed a vast array of emotions, not just a simple few. Psychologist Robert Pluchik was one of the first researchers to voyage into a more wide-ranging view of the intensity of human emotion. Over decades of study, Pluchik found human emotions occur as sophisticated, mystifying mixtures of core emotion. And like most psychologists of his day, he initially saw negative emotions as just a defense mechanism purely negative. As his work progressed, he found that stretching the intensity and the range of emotions was truer to life and less one-dimensional than the psychologists of his day were making them out to be. Although primary emotions like rage, grief, or terror can be unproductive reactions in their strongest intensities, those same emotions have less intense productive versions like annoyance, pensiveness, or apprehension. And it is those second and third tier negative emotions that, if clearly seen and managed intelligently, spark curiosity rather than smother it. 